There have been a few of these, but this is yet another sordid story from the book of Genesis where nobody comes out looking good. We've had a few of these stories where everybody was wrong. And usually in those stories, the name of God doesn't come up at all. And that's not because God was not there. It's because nobody in that story was paying any attention to God or what he had said or what he was trying to get them to do. And chapter 34, we just finished up Jacob's return to the land of Israel. He has now been given the name Israel. And this story begins the focus on his children. And his children do not do very well in the book of Genesis. There are going to be a series of stories of these awful things that Jacob's kids did. And this is the beginning of that. It's hard to absorb the things that you read in this story, and it's not fun to discuss and talk about. This, of course, is, if you know the story, this is the story of the rape of Dinah and then the sacking of the city by Jacob's children. And you read this and you go, how could this be one of Jacob's children, one of Isaac's grandchildren, one of Abraham's great-grandchildren doing things like this? And when you read it, it also reminds you of the things that you've seen in your own life. And our culture in particular has grabbed hold of the idea of masculinity and launched a campaign of disapproval against it. And it uses such things like we read about in this story as its jumping off point to attack what they call toxic masculinity. Maybe you've heard that before. But what we're going to see as we go through this story is that to see things like this and then aim all the guns at men in general and say they are the problem not only ignores many of the root causes of these things, but provides no solution and, in fact, can make things much worse. Because masculinity is not toxic. The word shows us what it is to be. And the solution to things like we're going to see here is the cultivation of a proper biblical manliness as an antidote to the reprehensible things that some men will do as sin gets a hold of them and drives them into greater and greater wickedness. Through the bad examples of this story, we will learn how we ought to be as men. And this is largely a message aimed at the men, but ladies, this is very important for you as well. It's all tied together. God created Adam in the beginning. Adam's name means man. When Jesus Christ, when the Son of God was incarnate, he became a man. God is very pro-masculine. So as our culture decides that we've got to abandon it, we've got to redefine it, we've got to eradicate it, we in the church ought to be at the forefront of reclaiming what the word says and redeeming, we talked about that last time, right? What God has made men to be. And of course, women are tied right into that. But this story is, is mostly aimed at the excesses of men. And we're going to learn from these negative examples. So let's read these first four verses of Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, or Dinah would be how she pronounced it. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. We read these verses at the end of the last chapter. Jacob was invited by Esau to join him in Seir, which is in the land of Edom. Instead, he went to this place called Shechem, or Shechem. And they settled there. They, they erected an altar, which is God, the God of Israel. And they did not move on to Bethel, which is going to be a significant point in the next chapter. And time goes by, probably years. There are some suggested it's been as long as 10 years since Jacob has left Laban's house. doesn't say specifically, but certainly some time has gone by because Dinah and the other children have grown. 
And we see Jacob's only named daughter. He maybe had more, but this is the only one who is named. She goes out to see the women of the land. And she ends up in a horrible situation. Now, traditionally, this is interpreted and understood that by going out to see the women of the land, Dinah was doing wrong. She was not supposed to be out among the Canaanite women, just as the men were not to be out among the Canaanite men. They were supposed to be maintaining their separation, which, of course, the Lord would make very clear in the books of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and so on. That she didn't go out just out with her friends, which was totally innocuous, but she actually went out to see what these Canaanites were like and to engage and participate in the Canaanite culture. Now, I, you, you hate to pile on in such a horrible situation like this, but this is how this is understood, that she put herself in a position where something horrible was able to happen. But it does not make that plain, so we want to be careful how far we stretch it. We also want to be careful when it says that Shechem, who was named for the city, he was the prince of the city, he saw her, he seized her, and lay with her, and humiliated her. Now, the way we immediately understand that is this is rape, that he forced Dinah to have sexual relations with him. That is probably the best way to understand this passage, but it should be made clear, and I should at least bring it to your attention, that there is a possibility that that is not exactly what is going on here. And it is possible that Dinah was more complicit in this than the victim. By saying that he seized her and lay with her, now that sounds very violent, but there are other places where that term is used not to refer to something as violent as rape. And then by saying he humiliated or humbled, maybe a better translation would be shamed her, we think, well, yeah, what is more shameful than that? But what you might understand in this story is that they had gone outside the bounds of the normal way that husbands and wives were brought together or that she had run off with him, essentially, that they were almost pulling a Romeo and Juliet and it was shameful to her family and her father. I, I don't think that's the best way to understand it, but I, I should tell you that the text does allow for that. I don't know that that fully explains the response that Levi and Simeon will have at the end of this chapter, but it is good to know, just, just for your own sake as you read through this. But what I want to draw out from this story is that Dinah was out with the women of the land in the, in the Canaanite culture, which the Lord would tell the children of Israel later to wipe them out. He says, because when you spend time with Canaanites, you're going to start acting like Canaanites. And she was out from under the surety of God's plan and comes across this man Shechem and she gets hurt, whatever that ended up being. And it certainly seems like it was the worst. And I want to use this, whether or not this, is, this was the, the intention of the writer, I want to use this as a metaphor for us here. Because we look at this story and, and we say, this is so horrific, how could he do something like this? But... Shechem was not living to the standard of righteousness that God had established for men from the beginning. And it seems, according to this story, that Dinah herself was beginning to step outside the bounds of what God had prescribed and to at least see what it was all about. For example, it is possible that when she went out to see the women of the land, it is possible to translate that she went out to be seen by the women of the land. The idea is that she was showing off. It's not clear, but it is possible. But I want to talk about this idea of a lack of a godly standard. We see the story, and everybody, for the most part, unless you are some sort of reprobate, can agree that rape is wrong. And, and that, that is not anything that I ought to have to defend. Sometimes that accusation is leveled against people, but I think it's an unfair one. No, nobody thinks that that is all right. But here's the problem. In this story, this, this kind of situation in the Hivite culture was not so unheard of. We're going to see later on his father was not shocked by this. And in our own culture, we react to something like rape as, oh, how horrible is that? But the problem is the only place that our culture has decided to draw the line sexually is that word called consent. Now, consent is an important thing, but we have made it the most important thing to where now the only thing that determines whether or not a sexual act is wrong is whether there was consent on both sides. 
And this is why we have these sprawling discussions, even in academia now, about what really constitutes formal consent. And there are those that even have proposed that there ought to be contracts that are signed. And there are apps called the consent app that you can download that will legally protect you if you're going to have sex with somebody. And that seems so strange, doesn't it? And we say well, that, that number one seems very clinical and not very romantic. But also it seems like such a weird line to draw. But that's the, where the world has drawn the line. If you want to do it, you can do it. And as long as you both want to do it, then it's all right. But I think that is such a shoddy foundation for any kind of morality. Well, we both wanted to. That's a terrible reason to make anything moral. It's very democratic, but it's not very godly. Because the world believes that you should be able to have sex however, whenever, with whoever you want, as long as they have given affirmative consent. But then they're going to be shocked when horrible things happen. They believe that sex should be free, it should be liberated, you can sleep with whoever you want, but then they're shocked and they can't understand what's going on with all these unplanned pregnancies. They're shocked and astounded at sexual diseases like, like AIDS and others that rise to the surface and scare so many people. They're infuriated at the hearts that are broken. There are, there are some that have even said, if, if you regret what you did the night after, then that, that constitutes rape because you obviously didn't consent or you wouldn't feel bad about it afterwards. They regret the shame. They, they can't believe that people would engage in this kind of activity and then not feel great about it. And then, of course, reacting to men acting out, men doing horrible, sexually aggressive things. But if you come to that and you say, this is a Canaanite way of handling sexuality, and you're setting yourself up for this kind of stuff, you're the one that somehow gets scolded for being outdated and old-fashioned. Isn't that odd? And they say, what are we going to do about all these unplanned pregnancies and these sexually transmitted diseases? And the church comes along and says, marriage should be monogamous and you should be abstinent until you're married. And then we're the bad guys all of a sudden because we're trying to restrict people. The Bible gives us a very definitive standard for what sexuality should be. And it is definitive. There are people that want to get cute and they want to hold up things like this and they say, well... It says that Shechem raped Dinah and that, that no one had a problem with that. God didn't say anything. That's, a, that's such a foolish thing to say. Obviously, God was not all right with this. Read through the law. Read through the rest of Scripture. It says later on in these verses that it's a horrible thing that should not have been done. So don't, don't listen to those people that want to tell you the Bible approves all kinds of things. It doesn't. Sexuality in the Bible is reserved for marriage. That is abundantly clear. That sex is something that belongs in a marriage relationship and that that marriage should be monogamous. God made one man and one woman. Later on, the Bible will restrict the pastorate and the eldership in a church to somebody who is only the husband of one wife. The idea being that somebody who is leading in God's church should be leading with God's ideal. Monogamous. That marriage should be heterosexual. The Bible makes it very clear in Romans 1, Leviticus and elsewhere that Homosexuality is an abomination before the Lord. It is a misuse of your body apart from the way that God created you. And that that marriage should be lifelong. There are allowances given in certain horrible situations for divorce, but the Bible says what God has joined together, let not man separate. So sexuality belongs in a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong marriage. That's the biblical standard. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We've looked at this passage in depth several months ago. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And as Jesus makes clear later, that one flesh is not poetic. It is very literal and physical. That it is the sexual union that unites a man and a woman together in the bond of marriage before God. So that's the way that God has prescribed it. And there are a number of benefits to this that you know but I'll remind you of them because we need to not just point at all the bad things being done wrong. We need to know the positive way that God has said it ought to be. We can't just say, look at all these terrible things that Shechem raped Dinah and this is so terrible. We need to have something that we can call the Shechems of the world too and the Dinahs as well. Number one, following a sexuality reserved for marriage biblical model. Number one, the first benefit is that sex remains good and encouraged. 
This is a very interesting thing because the world comes at the church and they say that Christianity and religion in general, they make no distinction, downplays sexuality and they want that part of you to die and to shrivel up and to, to not be lived and fully explored. That's actually not true. The, one of the reasons, as we just read in Genesis 2, that God gave marriage to us is that the sexuality of a person would be able to be fully enjoyed. Sex was a good thing. It exists before the fall, and the Lord said that it was good, and that it should be encouraged. We're going to get to some places later where the apostles and others make very plain that this is something that must be pursued and continued in a healthy Christian marriage. So for those who say things like sex should be a human right, and that if you deny it or you deny somebody what they want to do, that you're somehow denying their humanity, simply not the case. There is a place for it, and the church should be pushing for that. Number two, so the second benefit, that men and women are united in that relationship, both physically but also spiritually. That it breeds good relationships between men and women in that kind of relationship. There can be trust between the two of them because they've both sworn that they're never leaving one another. There can be faithfulness between them because they know that they're not going to be with anybody else and they've never been with anybody else, so they don't have to worry about them. That it, it, it takes a, a complementary relationship. Men are different than women. I don't need to explain that to you. And it brings it together in something that is reflective of the image of God, of Christ and the church. So while this is not always lived up to, ideally that's exactly what it's supposed to be. And number three, the third benefit of this kind of relationship is so that children can be raised in a stable home. And it's remarkable to me that people want to push for free love, free sex, free divorce, and those are the same people that will cry and rage about the fact that their father left them or that their mother never cared for them and that their parents couldn't make it work. And they're unable to see the connection between those two things. They can't see the fact that their family falling apart, which hurt them so badly, was a byproduct of the same lifestyle that they are espousing. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 said that one of the reasons God made marriage was he was desiring godly offspring. Children are wonderful. Most people that say, I don't like kids, I have found, have not had much interaction with kids. The Lord wants to draw that out of you, to make you not just a man, not just a husband, but a father, and to be a mother as well, and to experience the fullness of life in, in a way that is prescribed and that is godly. That is the godly design. Monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong marriage, and that's where sexuality gets to be. And for that reason... The Song of Solomon, which is all about marriage and sexuality, says in three different places, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What is that saying? Saying very plainly, sex is to be reserved for marriage, so don't stir that part of yourself up until you are able to fulfill it. Men and women are, according to that passage and others, to be self-controlled and modest in order to preserve this system. That men are to be self-controlled. That they are not to be dominated by their hormones, by the drives that they have, by the friends around them. And that women, according to 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 and elsewhere, are to be dressed modestly and to conduct themselves modestly. And there is a difference between those two things. There can be a woman who is dressed perfectly modestly, but the way that she is acting is entirely immodest. That men and women both are not to awaken those things in one another because it's not fair to the other person. It's not fair to arouse a young man when he has no ability to fulfill that. That's what the Bible says. And it's the same thing for a young woman. It's not fair for a young man to tease her or to string her along or to think that she's going to get something from him and then deny it to her. It's, it's not what God intended. That's the godly system, is that you save yourself for marriage, as we say, and you conduct yourself in, in a way that communicates that you are saving yourself for marriage. Then when you enter into that relationship, you are free to enjoy the fullness of what God has given to you. And the world will look at that and they might say, now that sounds really good. And someday I'll get there. Oh, I hear this all the time. Someday I'll settle down, right? 
but I'm going to sow my wild oats first. The world wants to introduce all manner of activity before all that, which threatens it. So they say, we want to be able to have as much free sex as we want before marriage, but once we get to marriage, then we'll do it just the way God wants. And then it doesn't work because they completely eroded the foundation that God intended to be lain. They did not heed Song of Solomon 8 verse 4. They awakened love and now they're in this relationship and it's not working for them. And they say, well, marriage must just be a lie and it doesn't work. And the church comes in and, you know, it's a false stat. I'm sure you've heard this. People say, well, the divorce rate is 50% in the world and 50% in the church. When you break that stat down a little bit and you look at Christians that are actively going to church, that actively serve in ministry, that actively believe the scriptures, there is a vast disparity between divorce in the church and in the world. And the, the Christians say, well, listen, you guys, your marriages are falling apart, but these are the reasons why. And the world, as I said a minute ago, steps in to defend the very things that are causing the trouble. They defend pornography. We say, okay, you haven't slept around, but you filled your mind with all these images that you can never fully live up to. You've warped your, your sexuality, and now you're getting married, and it's going to be difficult for you. Nothing you can't overcome by the grace of God, but why would you do it? And the world doesn't just want to say this is something that just happens and we've got to move past it. Now they want to defend it as a positive good. That you ought to introduce your children to pornography. That you shouldn't shame them. That you shouldn't even ask. You shouldn't try to look into that because it's just part of growing up. They defend immodesty. Oh, I might, I might get canceled for what I said a minute ago, that women ought to dress modestly. Because people say, well, that, that's shaming of women. And you're saying that women are, are the temptresses and that it was Dinah's own fault that she got raped. Absolutely. Am I not saying any of that? But I will say that if a woman is going to the trouble to arouse the men around her, then she's not going to attract the kind of attention that she wants. And if you say, well, I'm not doing that for him, I'm doing it for me, then you are a fool. Because it might not be done for them, but that is how it is being perceived by the people around you. But they want to defend that. A woman should be able to flaunt her sexuality as much as she wants. It's a dangerous path. They defend the whole promiscuous culture. Go out and get, get wasted, get drunk, get high, sleep around. It's what you got to do. You're in college. You know, go do your thing. They defend all manner of sexual deviance from homosexuality on down. They don't even want to defend the fact that you, children should be in a two-parent home. That, that's shaming to somebody that is a single mother or a single father. They defend divorce. If you're in love, you should just break it off. And you say, you ought to be married and stay married. And they say, no, you're just trying to force everybody into your own box. And then they wonder why terrible things happen. Why are children having a hard time? Why can't they trust their parents? Why is there this rash of sexually transmitted diseases? Why does rape happen? Why did this woman end up this way? Because you are defending this system where the only rule is, I wanted to. And in a world like that, how are men to control themselves? How are women to control themselves? This is what we've got to do in the church. We've got to reclaim the godly design for marriage. That marriage is not a place where sexuality goes to die. This is how the world understands it, right? Well, once you get married, that part of your life is all over. That's not biblical. It's not the place where individuality ends. Well, you know, once you get married, it's all about him and it's not about you anymore. Or the vice versa. But we defend marriage as a positive good. That there's love and that there is loyalty to be found in that relationship. And that there's no shame for not being in that relationship either. But Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The world cannot have sexual liberation and moral outrage at the same time doesn't work. You can't say, do whatever you want, and then say, how dare you do that? You can't pick and choose. Now we're seeing this debate that is scaring me to death where people are trying to defend pedophilia. Church has been warning about that for years, and they called us kooks, and now we're having this conversation. And what the world is saying is, no, a child can't give consent. Now, I would agree with that, but if that's the only reason, They'll call in some scientist or some psychologist that's going to say, well, if the whatever part of the whatever brain is developed, then they're perfectly content. And now the age of whatever just drops and drops and drops. And men in particular, 
are blasted for being an out of control in this system. When the system is set up in a way, not on purpose, but it is, to drive them out of control. It's unfair to demand somebody snap out of it when you've been laying out in front of them everything that their worst tendencies wants. I mentioned a second ago, and I'm, I'm not coming down on anybody here, but it seems that women are given a pass for their behavior when they too ought to be corrected. I would never defend any man acting out, but I say, well, men don't respect me. And we say, well, you don't dress respectable or act respectable. Well, you can't shame me for that. Well, you asked. You asked what the issue was. Men are visual. Men are physical. And to be in these situations where there is all this visual stimulus and physical stimulus and then expect that they're going to be perfectly well-behaved gentlemen, it's unfair. It's not right, but it's not fair. So are you saying that men should be given a pass for all the bad things they do? No, I'm saying that the whole Canaanite system has to be demolished. I would never defend somebody assaulting somebody else sexually or even high-pressure seduction or any of that. Certainly not to where some people will get women inebriated and then take advantage of them. We've got to lead our children to maturity in these things quickly for their own sakes. Your child ought to be mature enough by the time they're going to be exposed to these things to handle it. So I don't know. Tradition would say yes. I don't know if the text says definitively yes. I don't know if Dinah was complicit in this story, but she was in the wrong place. She shouldn't have been out among the Canaanites. And we should not ourselves be out among, so to speak, the Canaanites when it comes to matters like this. Being just like everybody else. Because the way everybody else is doing it is not working. But I want to focus our attention at the men in this story. We just looked at the big picture here. We just looked at the fact that the, the, the way the world handles sex, marriage, etc. Is, is a sick, broken way to do it. And that it makes it incredibly difficult for men and women to conduct themselves in a godly manner. But as we go through this, we're going to see two different kinds of excess that the men in this story engage in. And I want to talk about redeeming those parts of masculinity that are seen distorted in this passage. It all has to start with ripping apart the whole system. And until you do that, it's going to be very difficult. But it can be done. And that's what we're going to focus on now. So we looked at the big picture. Let's zoom in on a few specifics here. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give the young woman to me to be my wife. The nerve of this guy. So Jacob finds out, his sons find out, apparently gossip spread fast, and the sons are furious, and rightly so. We're furious too, reading this story. Jacob is weirdly passive in this chapter. He does not speak much, he does not act, and that is to his discredit. We get angry when we hear about this, and the world gets angry about such things too. It was an outrageous thing that must not be done. And yet Hamor does not correct his son. Instead, he offers to wed him to Dinah without an apology. They didn't even come on their knees and say, we are so terribly sorry, this was wrong, we are in your hands. What have we done? In fact, in this culture, what probably ought to have been done was him to deliver his son over to Jacob and say, you do whatever you want with my son, because this was not right. But instead they say, how about we make an alliance? We'll let the two kids get married, and then we'll all intermarry, and they're offering essentially to assimilate them into the Hivite culture, which was unacceptable. And here's Shechem even daring to look her father in the face 
and say, whatever, I, I'm in love with her now. And it seemed, the Bible says he was. So it seems that this guy was, was, was not just a gorilla. He was just completely unrestrained in his passions and in everything he did. He was the prince of the city. He got everything he wanted. And to me, Shechem in this story represents unbridled sexual aggression, which is falsely understood as masculinity. This is our first excess that we're going to look at. And Hamor is the indulgent attitude that allows that kind of thing to continue. As I said, unbridled male sexuality that we call being manly. This can be a couple of things. It can be actual sexual aggression, although that is fairly rare. And it's usually not with the fellows that you think would be responsible for that. It's usually not the, the big, tough, strong guys. It's very often the guys that are weak and shy and unable to meet girls in other ways, I have found, that tend to be the most slippery and manipulative. But So it can be actual aggression. But it also manifests itself as promiscuity, sleeping with a whole bunch of women, as many as you can, those high-pressured seduction techniques I mentioned a second ago, that you make an art of manipulating women to get that from them, braggadocio about your own sexual prowess and how great you are and how you're a stud and everything else. And this is it. That's what it means to be a man. Now the world looks at that and say that's disgusting. But I would counter with that and say, no, that's not how God created men to be. The way that men explain this is they'll say, well, listen, they use evolution as their backup. We're all just evolved from animals. And most male animals, will they'll sleep with as many females as they can because the genetic code has to be passed on, and that's how evolution works. So I'm just doing what's in my genes to do, and they, they, you can't blame me for that. And say, well, you ought to get married, and you ought to be with one woman. And they say, well, that's just restrictive, and it's not natural. It's not the way that the animal kingdom works. It's actually a distortion of masculinity. You have just admitted that you're acting like an animal. And that has nothing to do with being a man, nothing to do with being mature. It's an adolescent fantasy that you have chosen to pursue into your adulthood. It's adolescent. It's, it's, a, it's an 11-year-old boy who thinks that every girl he sees is the most beautiful creature he's ever seen. And someday when I grow up, and now you're 30 and you're still doing that. And you found some scientist online that's going to give you a pass to do this as much as you want. Like any guy that says things like that really cares what the science says. If it wasn't science, they'd find some other reason to explain it, wouldn't they? Now, the Bible understands that men are more physically sexual than women. The Bible gets this. And the world is, has caught up and has come out with all kinds of studies and everybody pretends to be amazed when the Bible's been telling us this whole time. That is how God made men. And it is a good thing for men to be more driven physically and sexually in that way. Why? Because when a man is married, according to the biblical model, and all of that energy is aimed at his wife, it is going to build loyalty, it's going to build faithfulness, and it's going to build a special kind of bond that he will not be able to find anywhere else. It takes all of that passion and it channels it into a relationship that's going to last forever. That's why God made it that way. Don't believe me? Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. This is what Solomon said to his son. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Oh, that feels awkward for us, doesn't it? But this is what the Bible says. Verse 19, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So the Bible is telling young men, you have all of this energy and this drive. There is a place for it. And it's with your wife. The wife of your youth, he says. I've referenced before 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says that in the home, in a Christian home, a husband does not have rights to his own body and a wife does not have rights to her own body. He says you are not permitted to keep yourself from each other sexually unless, he says, by mutual consent for a short time, like if you're fasting or something like that. A Christian marriage is to be thriving sexually. Is it interesting for you to hear that? That's what the Bible says. A Christian man is to always be intoxicated with the love of his wife. 
Now, why is that? Why, why is it? And we hear that and we go, that doesn't seem right that a man should have to listen to his wife in that way or that a woman should have to listen to her husband. He says that you may keep each other from temptation. He's saying if a man is finding in his wedding marriage relationship everything that that drive in him is calling for, he won't be tempted to go anywhere else. It is a husband's responsibility to keep his wife from temptation to adultery. And it is the wife's job to keep her husband from temptation to adultery. And that is countercultural. But it's biblical that the couples are supposed to take care of one another. People say, well, once you get married, you're never going to have sex again. That is not what the Bible says. That is not Christian. It should not be Christian. And I've, I've said this before, but when I've had counseling situations, people come in and they're having trouble, a man and a wife, and they're fighting and they're snippy with each other. Sometimes you have to bring this question into the conversation, and it's always awkward. You say, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 together. Are you all practicing this? And then one of them will scoff at the other. Like, huh, yeah, of course not, never. No, that's not part of our relationship anymore. And believe it or not, biblically, that's the solution. Because you all have separated yourselves from a, a relationship that was supposed to tie you together spiritually. Malachi says that the Holy Spirit is in that union, binding you together in your soul and your spirit. So you say, we're not connecting on an emotional level. Well, if you've stopped connecting on a physical level for months before, what would you expect? And I realize that we giggle and we blush when we hear this. But we need to be adults about this and look at what the Word says. Because a man is to be the protector and the leader of his home. If you withhold that part of him, women, if you withhold that and you do not allow the man that you have married to live this out, he will grow resentful of you. And then the years will go by and perhaps he falls into temptation and all anybody will see is perhaps the adultery or the affair. When all along, the Lord, may we, was telling you, you need to help him overcome those temptations. We've got to reclaim this for our men, that there is a godly place for this. And the women in the church ought to be making it easy for their husbands in this way. And vice versa as well, but we're picking on the men today. Again, the world comes in and mocks this system. The woman who comes in and mocks godly men, but then complains about how there's no good men in the world, is a fool. I have friends and I've even known closer than that family members that have said, well, I can't find a good man. I said, well, you got to come to church and meet somebody. They're like, oh, I can't stand the guys I meet at church. They're so boring. It's like, well, then what am I supposed to say to you then? The woman who dresses provocatively and then gets shocked when she finds provocative responses. Or the woman who marries and then ceases to physically delight in her husband. I heard a testimony one time uh, in, a, in a Christian book for men, and the story was resolved, but... The wife told her husband after they got married, she said, aren't you so glad that we don't have to pretend to like sex anymore? And we say, what in the world? Is that biblical? No, it is not. And that man was set up for failure. And fathers, so that's Shechem, but let's talk about Hamor here. Fathers, we got to stop winking at this stuff in our young men. When we see them start to go after this stuff, pornography, casual sex, and things like that. Well, it's just part of growing up. No, it's not. You're making it difficult for yourself later on. Nor is it any good to come in and try and tell men that the way you are is wrong. And you've just got to keep a lid on all that. Don't ever think about it. Don't ever express it. It's not right. It's not even good in marriage. You should never do anything like that. Well, that's not right because that's not the way God made us. It's not what the Bible says. You don't just flee evil. You pursue what is good. And if we as a culture, I don't know if I have an answer for this, but if we have a, as a culture are going to insist that children are old enough to have sex from the time they're 15, 16 onward, but they're not ready to get married until they're 30, we're just setting ourselves up for trouble. You say, well, kids aren't growing up. If you are saying you're not going to be ready to get married until you're, you're way later down the road, but you can have as much sex as you want, you're removing one of the primary incentives for young men and women to grow up and to stop doing those things. And we tell them, no, you've got to get your career established. You've got to get your, your degrees done. You've got to make sure that everything is established first. But you expect them to go through the most tumultuous years of their lives sexually without being able to engage in that? 
I don't know if I have a solution to that problem, but I think it's something we've got to look at. The masculine standard is not Shechem here. It's to be delighted in his wife, protecting her, providing for her, loving those kids, and leading that family well. That's manhood. Anybody who says, oh, I'm grown, I'm a, I'm a real man, and it's like, but you don't have a family, you're not taking care of anybody, you just, you're doing the same thing you were doing when you were 17 years old, and that's, that's not a real grown-up man. That's a, that's a grown-up child is what that is. And as I've said, the Bible makes it clear you do not have to be married to fulfill all that. But it's certainly not the way the world is putting it to us. Just having sex with a bunch of loose women does not make a man masculine. And it also doesn't matter, by the way, that Shechem was so in love. Oh, we were so in love. True love. Who can stop true love? Well, you better figure out a way. Control yourself. Don't awaken love until it pleases. And then delight yourself in the bride of your youth. Let's keep going now. Verse 13. And we're going to read the whole rest of the chapter here. The story takes a very dark turn because you thought it wasn't dark enough. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor in their marriage proposal deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. Makes me say, what are the rest of these guys like? So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were still sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Like I said, dark turn. The sons of Jacob deceive the men of the city. They say, listen, we, we, normally we would let you marry her, but y'all are not circumcised, and this is a very important thing to us. So the whole city agrees to be circumcised right away. This was a setup. And I'll, I'll just say this briefly as we move on. Any culture that is going to permit the kind of sexual culture that this city was, you are setting yourself up for trouble. You're setting yourself up for disaster, whether you know it or not. I mean, just look at the stats in our own country. It's not working for us, but because it feeds the flesh, everybody wants to continue with it. So the men are circumcised, and it says on the third day, and I I read uh, that medically what happens is during that kind of operation, when the foreskin is cut off, that there is a fever that comes upon the body, and then that actually alleviates some of the pain and isn't as bad. Obviously, at this point, there's no anesthetic, anything like that. But on the third day, that fever begins to recede, and that is the most painful day after circumcision. So Simeon and Levi, who are Dinah's full brothers, they are also of Leah, Jacob's wife, they come in and they massacre the men when they cannot fight back. They massacre them. They rescue Dinah. It seems she was in Shechem's house. So was she being held as a hostage? Was she there on her own? Were they using her as a leverage because they were trying to get the wealth of Jacob into this city? It's not clear. But after they go in and kill all the men, 
The rest of the sons go into the city and they sack the city of Shechem. They lay waste to it. They plunder it, looting and burning and taking slaves out of the city. You need to get how horrific this is. And there's Jacob at the end, impotent and and really despicable. He doesn't say, how could you kill all those people? He said, you made a lot of trouble for me. They're going to come after us now. Maybe he's right, but they're sitting there like, you don't even care what just happened to your own daughter, Jacob. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, the city deserved this. This is not justice. This is vengeance. This is far beyond justice. Justice would have been Shechem paying for the price, maybe even his father for permitting it. But they went to an entire city of people and killed them all and enslaved the rest because of this. Simeon and Levi represent for us the second excess that we're looking at, which is unbridled violence. We looked at unbridled sexuality before. This is unbridled violence. This is the the willingness to fight at the drop of a hat, what the Bible calls being pugnacious. You ever know somebody like that? Maybe you even had a friend like that where every five minutes you're trying to calm them down. Like, take it easy, bro. No one's trying to fight you. Murderous rages that men will get into where they just allow themselves to get so angry and so worked up that you just better get out of the way. Men who beat their wives or beat their children. Men who will take weapons and go out and shoot or stab people. There are even men who just delight in pain and suffering. They want to watch it on TV. They want to see it in the people around them. And there's a physical evil to them. There are some men who believe that me being physically strong and physically violent is what makes me a man. But again, it's a distortion of masculinity. Again, you're, you're an animal. See, I'm, I, I'm violent and I react to people and I'm strong so I can take... So you're just saying you're the biggest baboon of the pack and that makes you a man? In fact, really, before you were an adolescent, now you're just a toddler. You're unable to control yourself so you have tantrums all over everybody. And we should be clear. So that's the distortion, but there's a biblical thing here. The Bible glories in the strength of men. The Bible celebrates the strength physically of men, including his ability to make war, including his ability to fight, to compete and wrestle and race. All of that is good. In Judges chapter 3, maybe you've never read these verses before. Verses 1 and 2. This is after the conquest in the book of Joshua. It says, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. So saying God left some nations in the land. Why? That the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. God says, I'm going to leave some enemies around you so that your young men who did not fight in the last war will at least know how and be able to defend and fight for their families and for their country. God expects his men to be able to defend themselves to defend their families and their country, not just verbally, not just morally, not just by providing, but physically. He loves it when men test their strength and do great things. This is why men and boys do dangerous things. I have three sons now, one's just a little baby and a little girl. The little boys, let's see who can throw the ball at each other's face the hardest and see who can take it the longest. Jocelyn just wants everybody to sit down and play nice and you know, we'll have a little circle of dolls and we'll look at all the things. And meanwhile, the boys are outside running around and trying to, <laughs> they'll, they'll get on their bikes and they'll see how long they can go down the hill before they put the brakes on to see if they're going to crash into the wall. And why do, why do boys do that? Because they're testing themselves. This is a very manly thing. You're testing yourself to see, could I handle this? If I needed to be in a situation where this happened, could I do it? If I needed to defend my wife, could I do it? If I needed to ride down a hill without putting any brakes on the bike, could I do it? Am I brave enough to handle that? This is why grown men will still go out and they climb rocks and they jump off of giant cliffs and they want to go down into the belly of the earth and dig gold out because they're testing their strength. This is what God told Adam to do in the beginning, right? Go out into the world and subdue it. Have dominion over it. God says, there's the world, Adam. Go make something of it. And we ought to be encouraging our young boys to be strong and to be skilled at what they do. Whatever you put your mind to, do it well. Find the limits of your ability and then see if you can improve them. 
even to learn how to take violent action if necessary. There's never a reason why you should ever have to fight somebody. Oh, yes, there is. Well, I don't want my son to learn how to do that. Okay, don't set him up to be bullied, though, because we can do this. I've known men, grown men. They get pushed around at their job. They get pushed around in, at the workplace. They get pushed around in, out in public. They even get pushed around in their own marriage because they were told by somebody once that if you ever resist or push back to anybody, you're doing something wicked and evil. And they get angry. And then they all blow up all of a sudden. We say, where did that come from? Well, this is not godly. Are you sure? Isaiah 42, verse 13 says, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. What does it mean to stir up his zeal? Any war movie where there's a big speech while the band is playing in the background, that's stirring up the zeal. Getting them ready for the big charge, right? The Lord stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Well, Jesus was a carpenter, and, and he never heard anybody. Yeah, but have you read Jesus in Revelation 19? He's riding down out of heaven with a robe stained with blood, and he's going to splatter, tread the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. He's a warrior who will come to take vengeance. There is a part of that in men that must be cultivated and redeemed. Now it can be here like Simeon and Levi, where you go far beyond what is necessary. Did somebody need to step up for Dinah here? Yes. Maybe even there needed to be a scrap. Who knows? But this was, this was deceitful. It was excessive. It was murderous. And the thing they did went so far beyond and also was aimed at people that had nothing to do with that situation. This is like Lamech. Remember Lamech back in chapter 10, I believe it was, when he says, I've killed a man for wounding me. I've killed a man for insulting me. He says, and if God's going to repay anybody who touches Cain by seven, then you're going to have to come after me. It'll be 70 times. I'm going to bring you down. We don't want to be excessive like that. But we also need to make sure that we recognize where there is a place for masculine strength. Look at Jacob. He had no answer for this situation. He's silent. He's just standing there, doesn't know what to do. He's paralyzed. It's almost worse than what his sons did. It certainly wasn't much better. He sits back and he disdains his son for the actions they take. Do you think they respected Jacob after this? I can tell you they didn't. And there are some people that want to be like Jacob in this situation, who have no positive answer to these things, but want to stick their finger in the face of men and the things that they do and the things they enjoy and say that all of your enjoyment is toxic. The feminists, of course, are the, are the worst about this. But there's also a strain of weak men that resent the strength of other men, that, that see strength itself as the threat, that that's what's got to go because it's just too frightening, the thought of a man being there who could maybe hurt you. The Bible doesn't teach us to be weak in that sense. It teaches us to be self-controlled, to be meek, it says. I remember I was at a, talking to a friend of mine, and he said, you know, I, just, I, I think that men have got to stop watching that UFC MMA stuff because it's probably causing them to go home and beat their wives, which to me was the most bizarre connection I've ever heard. There's also no statistical correlation to that. But I was saying, no, th what, what this is, this is not some... some brawl that they're participating in. This is something with rules. This is something with training. This is something prescribed. There's referees there. And this is something that men watch to get engaged with that part of themselves that his wife is going to want when somebody breaks into the house or comes after the kids. So the church needs to be the ones redeeming this. Well, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 39, that if anybody strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one. You need to understand that passage properly. Jesus is not saying that if someone comes to harm you or to rob you or to hurt your family, that you've got to let them do it. The slap on the cheek is an honor-shame thing. It's like somebody inviting you to a duel or insulting you. Jesus is like, you don't got to be the guy escalating situations. That's the point that Jesus is making. You know, some people, you put them in the room and you know they're going to be swinging after a few minutes. Jesus is like, don't be that guy. If we strip men of any chance or incentive to be strong, that energy is going to come out somewhere, and that's when you get problems. When men are strong, they can defend the weak, their wives and their children, as God planned. And some men are just too afraid to step up. And that's another form of bad acting. You know, you, you've got the, the Simeons and Levi's that, 
are just too aggressive and out there harming people, hurting people. But then you've also got the Jacobs, so to speak, from this story that are stepping back and just letting things happen. First of all, women don't fall in love with men like that. They grow to resent men like that. And the church has had a bad habit, I have seen, of rewarding people like that. Not people who are strong and self-controlled, but people who are weak and harmless and say that that is moral. It's not, it's not moral. When somebody is incapable of strength, that doesn't make them good. It just means they are incapable of strength. Simeon and Levi are going to lose their blessing for this. Reuben will lose his next week in another horrible story. But in chapter 49, they're going to be lose their blessing because they went out of their way to massacre a whole city, sack it, to take slaves from it. It's great testimony for the Lord, isn't it? And men, we must also never let our violent excesses get the best of us. We want to be like David. David was a man of war who knew when to make peace. On the other hand, you had his cousin Joab, who was a man of war who knew nothing about making peace. When the son of Saul and David, whose kingdoms were in conflict with one another, when they were finally ready to make peace and unite the kingdoms, Joab killed the guy out of a personal grudge of what the dude had done to him before. He had no self-control. That's the difference. And this is just a terrible story, isn't it? First we see Dinah get abused. Then we see them try to purchase her. Then we see them lie. And then we see Simeon and Levi destroy the whole city. And then Jacob has nothing to say about it. What's the solution to this? It is a return to the godly design for men and women, but especially in this chapter for men. The world at this point is on a campaign to dismantle gender. You've noticed this, haven't you? There is no such thing as male or female, that gender is different from sex, and that you should never question it, that you should be allowed to do whatever you want. But have you noticed that when you start looking at all these alternate genders and these alternate things, it's always masculinity that suffers. A transgender woman, which is a man who becomes a woman, is rejecting everything masculine about himself. And even a transgender man, which is a woman who wants to live like a man, she doesn't really live like a man. She still retains all of these feminine female qualities. And then you get these other men that say, well, we need to get rid of everything that's manly and be more like women. And that's what it means to be good. This is so wrong. The answer to misplaced masculinity, whether that's active or passive, is not to be less masculine, but more. To redeem the design that God has more. To respect what is good and to hold up what is good, not just to avoid what is bad. You know, saying don't rape people and don't fight is, is a terrible moral standard. Yeah, don't, 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 don't. Okay, who's going to live up to that? What you do is you hold up the standard as we did tonight, that this is what God has for you. And the system itself, and I'm not talking about a formal system. I'm talking about just the way that our country, our culture handles sex in general. That's the problem. We've got to get back to God's way. This means that men express their full sexuality in marriage and their full strength for the ones they love. It's so old-fashioned, but it's so good. And I'd add one more thing. Men, if we want to redeem manhood, it's up to us to do so. Don't wait for your wife to do it for your kids. Don't wait for your girlfriend to push you to do it. Don't wait for the feminist to tell you now it's all right for you to get back to this. It's so odd to me that in the public sphere, the ones who are championing manhood the most are women. It's the most bizarre thing. I, I don't understand it fully. But listen to what Proverbs 31 verse 3 says. Bathsheba wrote this. Keep this in mind. Bathsheba said, Do not give your strength to women, my son, or your ways to those who destroy kings. Samson gave his strength to a woman, didn't he? And he lost it. So did Solomon. So did Ahab. It's not up to them. It's up to us. Adam gave his strength to a woman, and we're all suffering for it. He should have led his wife rather than capitulated to his wife. And that's not to knock women. I'm knocking men. It's our job to lead. You cannot let the bad actors, the ones that are excessive in these things, or the bad actors of feminism, or even those in the church or any other group, tell us who we are, or the weak-willed men who support them, but say, this is what God says, and this is who we are. Only masculinity can pass on masculinity, which is why we, as a, as a congregation, as a community, need to be taking the young Shechems and the young Levites and the young Simeons in their youth and teaching them well, saying, this is what it looks like to be a godly man, holding them to that standard. And women, you doing the same thing for the ladies in the church. 
This is why we have the church in, in the first place. We can't just come in together and wail, oh, these terrible murders, oh, the terrible rapes and sexual abuse. Those are awful, but we ought to be coming at it with the positive side, which is protection and faithfulness. Because God created man and said that he was good. But we've all been corrupted by sin. But we've been filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ that enables us to live out the fullness of who God intended us to be. And the world is waiting for this, aren't they? The church has got to be the, the number one champions of this right now. Because there are people that are looking for it. They say, I want to be a good man, but I don't know how. Jesus will teach you how. God himself has revealed himself as masculine. There's something to that. We ought to redeem it and celebrate it, but we've got to do it his way, not the world's way.